You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. As I'm sure you've heard by now, three times in three days and four times in a week, unidentified objects have been shot out of the sky in North America. Not the most comforting of headlines. Here's a brief timeline. On February 5th, a U.S. fighter jet shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon. On February 10th, another unmanned flying object was shot down off the coast of Alaska. This time an object the size of a small car was downed in the northeastern part of the state on Friday. On February 11th, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau ordered another unidentified object to be shot down over Yukon. The closest city to the fallen debris is Dawson City. Then Feb 12th, the U.S. orders a fourth object to be shot down, this one located over Lake Huron. Debris is likely on the Canadian side of the lake for that one. As a result, both countries on either side of the 49th parallel have their eyes on the sky, which is leading to fear on the ground. There are some common denominators to the last three, all seem to float, have no known propulsion system, and are unmanned plus They were found at altitudes that are dangerous to civil aviation. But concrete details are few and far between. I'm Donovan Bennett, host of the Going Deep podcast for Sportsnet, and I'm filling in for Jordan. This is The Big Story. Stephanie Carvin is an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and a former national security analyst with the government of Canada. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, thanks for having me on. So as I'm sure you've seen, the conspiracy theories and speculation is running wild. People are worried about aliens, Chinese spies, and Russian invasions with little information. What do we know? So what we know is not a lot, actually. I think there's far more questions than we have answers. We do know that there's been four objects identified. The first is, um, let's call it the original spy balloon. We, we've actually seen it. It's been on camera and it was shot down uh, in pretty spectacular fashion using F-22s and Sidewinder missiles over the coast of Myrtle Beach. And then since that time, uh, you know, there's a bit of a pause, but there's been three other objects. There was one that was uh, shot down over the coast of Alaska. There's been one that was shot down in uh, northern Yukon. And then there's one that has been shot down um, just this past weekend over Lake Huron, you know, pretty, pretty close to, I think, where, where we both are. And what we know is that all the objects are kind of of different shapes and sizes. And allegedly, at least we know the first balloon is believed to be Chinese. And China said, yes, this is a weather balloon. And the U.S. has said, no, we, we believe this to be a spy balloon. The other three objects, which have been described as similar to the balloon, but not yet definitively said are balloons. We don't know where they're from. We don't know if they're part of a wider, you know, Chinese balloon program, or if they're just some kind of uh, objects from either from another country or from possibly even um, Americans who have been flying uh, balloons for their own data of scientific experiments or enjoyment. So is there anything that we can rule out? Uh, aliens, I think. Um, there's been a lot of speculation online that uh, <laughs> this may be UFOs and, and shooting down of UFOs. But, you know, I think what we have seen is a lot of caution from both American and Canadian officials as to the nature of these three other objects. I don't think anyone wants to definitively say 
that they are Chinese until there is, you know, better proof uh, that that is the case. So yeah, no, I think there's still a wide range of possibilities here. But uh, yeah, I'll just be straight up and, and probably discount the alien theory. Okay, good to know. The Pentagon says Chinese spy balloons are different than the objects we've seen most recently. How so? Um, so they're all different in shapes and sizes in the altitude that they're flying. I mean, I think we all have now seen the, the first balloon, which is very, obviously very large, very white, very round, uh, and carrying a payload, what's called a payload, or basically some kind of solar panels and potentially some motors to, to guide it, um, and maybe even some what's been described as signals intelligence uh, capabilities. The other objects we ha don't have good footage of we do know that um, the one over the Yukon was described as cylindrical in shape by the Canadian Defense Minister, Anita Anand. And we know that the one over uh, Lake Huron was bizarrely described as octagonal in shape, right? Like a stop sign, which is such a, a weird uh, description, but that's apparently what it looked like. So the other thing that's interesting here is, is the they're all flying at different heights. The original balloon is believed to have flown as high as 60,000 feet. The one that was flying over Lake Huron was 20,000 feet. So I, I don't know if that's deliberate. I don't know if, you know, these were balloons that were flying at a certain height and then were lowered or if they've always been flying at that height. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of differences between these different objects that, that have been shot down. So we can rule out aliens. We can rule out, I guess, maybe Chinese spy balloons after the first one. But is there a specific country that there's a thought or fear might be behind this? So as you say, yeah, the first one, it was, you know, China said it was a weather balloon. The, the Americans said it was a spy balloon uh, that has been attributed to China. And that, you know, I think the, the flight path of that has now been shown to actually uh, come from China as well. The other three objects, again, we, we don't know. I believe the suspicion is that these are also uh, potentially from China. But I think we need to be careful because there are other possibilities. There are, there are other countries that may want to gather intelligence on the United States. I, I really question whether a balloon is the best way to do that, but I, I do think we should be very cautious in saying this. Anything really definitively as to, as to the origin of this country until we see more proof. So I've kind of looked at this oddly, like my own spending habits. Like my wife finds more bad credit card purchases because she's looking for bad credit card purchases. It, <laughs> It is the intensified radar scrutiny that we've had after the first Chinese spy balloon leading to an increase in sightings? Are we essentially seeing more because we're looking more? I, I love that analogy. It's just, it brings me a lot of joy. It, it, it exactly explains the problem, right? Like once there's that kind of suspicion, you start looking for things that you're looking for, right? Um, and I think this is a really important consideration in, in this conversation. And we do know that authorities have said that they have widened the spectrum or range at which they are actually looking at things that are floating in the sky. And, and that makes sense, right? Because normally you want to have some kind of filter as to the, you know, kind of range of objects. You don't want to confuse a little Cessna plane with uh, some kind of, of malicious object floating in the sky, right? You want to be really, really careful. But I think there's a recognition now that maybe NORAD, um, which is the North American Air Defense, or the different uh, authorities which are in charge of protecting our skies, that they need to maybe take a, a wider view to look for more of these objects so we have a better understanding. So I think we need to be careful about assuming that this is just a new trend 
that started, you know, two weeks ago. This may be something that's actually been going on for some time, but we just haven't noticed it or registered it in a way that, you know, has has really come to light. I love that you mentioned NORAD because I want to follow up on that because it has become the acronym that many people, my friends included, are using in conversation that they don't really understand. So how is it possible that Canada can issue an order to an American fighter pilot and on the flip side, the U.S. can conduct an operation in Canadian territory. What is NORAD exactly and how does it work? Right. Okay. So I think most people are probably familiar with NORAD uh, for two reasons. One is um, the Santa tracker <laughs> at Christmas, right? <laughs> NORAD every year, uh, I guess, protects Santa from uh, missiles. I don't know. <laughs> every year. And the second reason people might be familiar with NORAD is a classic 1980s film called War Games, where a teenage hacker from Seattle basically um, is able to hack into the NORAD systems and makes it look like there's going to be some kind of Soviet invasion and it looks like the, the computer is going to launch a devastating uh, nuclear missile attack and, and end the world. It's, it's, a, great, it's, a, it's a great film if, if you uh, Gen Z folk haven't seen it yet. And it kind of speaks to the fear, I think, of uh, the 1980s where there was concern uh, about nuclear war in uh, and the tension between, say, the Reagan administration and the Soviet Union when Reagan was kind of building up a lot of uh, U.S. military capacity. But it is, it's, it's you know, NORAD is a project of the Cold War. It, it's a Cold War organization. And as the Soviet Union was developing nuclear weapons and the capacity to deploy them in the 1950s, there was this, you know, understanding that there was a need to protect North America. And in 1957, the United States and Canada signed an agreement called uh, the North American Air, Air Defense in 19 in the 1980s. It was actually changed to the North American Aerospace Defense, uh, kind of reflecting a larger view of things that uh, NORAD was actually doing. It, it came to fruition in 1958, and it's headquartered in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And it's important because it really is a, a bi-national organization. And it's, you know, again, it has these kind of defensive missions, including aerospace warning, aerospace control, maritime warnings, all these uh, different kinds of things. And it's supposed to detect threats to North America. So, I mean, if you think back to the 1950s, it was looking for Soviet bombers doing some kind of surprise attack on North America. Then that changed to missiles and, and other kinds of, of objects, Right. But importantly, the commander of NORAD is responsible to both the U.S. president as well as the Canadian prime minister. So the head of NORAD is almost always an American, but the number two is always a Canadian as well, right? So that's how the the, the power tends to be uh, shared in that organization. So the idea that, you know, over Canadian airspace, right, like Canada is still a sovereign country, we are in this kind of bilateral agreement with the Americans. And, you know, the prime minister basically issues an order to, to take it down. That's done by NORAD. And in this case, it was an American plane that happened to be there, happened to be there close and, and probably had the capacity and capability to do it. So this isn't, you know, I think I saw some people being upset saying, oh, why didn't a Canadian plane take it down? You know, it's just about what is the most efficient way of doing things. This is effectively just how NORAD works. And, you know, we can have a whole conversation about whether or not using $400,000 Sidewinder missiles to take out possible spy balloons is a good idea. But that's effectively what NORAD has been doing. How 
how do we split the bill on Neurad? Are we going half seas? Are we using the Splitwise app? You know, <laughs> it, 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 in the last federal budget, the finance minister, Christopher Freeland, pledged roughly $4.9 billion over six years to modernize Norad. What does modernizing Norad entail and how, if at all, would it help in situations like this? Hey, look, Canada's been skipping out on the bill for a very long time. I think they would, uh, the Americans would love it if we had some kind of app for, for that purpose. Right. We're that friend. We're that friend, right? Um, and even then, I would say the $4.9 billion you're saying is not actually a lot of money and probably not nearly enough. I mean, the cost of NORAD modernization is massive. It will probably take 10 times the, that amount to actually modernize the equipment that's up there, right? And it's all early detection equipment and, and things like this. So it's, it's a lot of money. And in an area where Canadians have traditionally not wanted to spend money, I mean, people kept saying, well, why wasn't a Canadian plane? Well, you know, we haven't invested in a lot of planes that can operate up there uh, for long periods of time. And that's that's a political choice. That's fine. That's a choice that 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 we can make. But then you know, when we when we need this stuff, it's it's not necessarily going to be there. So we need to have a conversation, a realistic conversation about how much this is going to take. It's you know, there there's talk about modernizing, um, you know, the the kinds of, of equipment that does uh, the detection of these kinds of objects. There's then there, there we get into more tricky questions, which are going to be about uh, missile defense. Do we want to actually does Canada want to participate in missile defense? as a part of a larger U.S. project to protect uh, the homeland from missiles. This is something that was extremely controversial in the late 1990s and early uh, 2000s. Canada said, no, it was not going to be a part of this. As, you know, perceived threats from China have shifted and as Russia has modernized its um, missiles into what's called hypersonic missiles, uh, there's some concern that um, we need to to be a part of that. Again, that's a very uh, difficult, challenging political conversation, and I'm not trying to advocate either way other than to say that uh, my concern is just we're not talking about it. <laughs> and these are things that uh, inherently impact our security, and we have to make a decision about what kind of military systems we want to be a part of, what that means, and it, it, it's just interesting that, you know, when we talk about all this kind of high-tech stuff, it's, it's a balloon that's probably going to prompt some of these more difficult conversations. So essentially, is Canada like me with my rich friends where they get the bill and I offer to pay the tip and maybe pay parking if I'm feeling <laughs> uh, friendly? You talk about the conversation. What has the prime minister's office have to say about this? And you know, on this podcast, there's been lengthy conversation. I know as a listener, you've been a part of them in the past about the Canadian government's lack of transparency. Why might they be keeping their cards close to the vest? So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There, there, there's been a lot of criticism that in these particular incidences that the Canadian government hasn't said a lot. And a lot of the information we have received about these different objects has come from the United States and not from Canada and that the Canadian government should be more forthcoming with information. And I'm actually very sympathetic to that view. I, I think that a lack of transparency in national security breeds conspiracy and mistrust and prevents us from having the kind of conversations we need to have about, again, NATO modernization. Um, as someone who also listens to the podcast when we've talked more uh, so much about healthcare spending and the importance of that, it, it's a hard decision to make. But if also we don't have information about 
what kind of threats are out there and um, what's at stake, then that conversation is inherently distorted, right? So I think that it's unfortunate that, again, we're just have this culture in Canada where we don't talk about these things, where we don't provide Canadians with information. And, you know, we often tell people to just kind of wait and see about where this is all headed, where this is all going. And, um, you know, that more information will come down the road. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I have no doubt in my mind that we will learn more about these balloons from the United States and possibly the United States Congress before we ever hear anything from Canadian authorities. And that's that's a bad thing. Well, certainly we have heard from the opposition. What has their response been? Um, so they've been raising questions about, again, you know, why haven't we heard about these things before? If NORAD was actually tracking this balloon, why was it that we didn't hear about it until it was over Montana? I think there's questions, again, we talked about this earlier, about like, well, why was it a U.S. plane that was shooting things down uh, and not Canadian uh, planes? There's been criticism about, you know, Canada neglecting North American security for some time and and the need to potentially uh, spend more in these areas. So, I mean, that that's, that's pretty typical about these kinds of things. I mean, in the U.S., the conversation's definitely been more wild. Um, the, in the United States, we've seen um, people saying that these balloons could potentially be, you know, used to deliver weapons of mass destruction, biological weapons, electronic magnetic pulses, which is a, a, a certain fascination with a, with a group of, of people usually on the right uh, of the political spectrum and, and, you know, a lot more outrage about this. I think the conversation in Canada has been somewhat more muted and kind of more anchored in kind of traditional criticisms of Canadian defense and security policy. Well, a conversation that was vocal and not as muted was real security concerns uh, from the Arctic that increased since the start of the war in Ukraine last March. Canada's three Northern territories, the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and none of it expressed some concerns. Does this scenario legitimize those concerns, or is it a bit of an apple to oranges comparison? You know, it's 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 it is it is and it isn't right. Um, that's a, that's a good question. I think the fact is that it, it all comes down to to military spending, and again, that's something that Canadians have not really always been interested in. And I understand because hey, I have two parents who are up for surgery this spring, and we're kind of. Uh, biting our nails to see if these operations actually take place because of the state of our, our healthcare system, right? Um, and and I get those those concerns. So in in the kind of broader piece, it I think it reflects a this conversation we need to have about military spending and, and how we want to go about doing it. And then secondly, I think it also this this balloon incident has been a bit of a shock to the system, in the same way perhaps the Ukraine war has been, because. Canadians are used to, to feeling pretty safe, right? You know, we're bordered by three oceans. We have a mostly benign neighbor to ourselves. And we have been insulated from the threats of geography that other countries have. Like, we're not in the Middle East. We're not in Europe. We're not in Asia. All of these countries that are there have experienced war in ways that we never really have at least in our modern history. So I think as a result of that, you know, we we have the luxury of kind of ignoring some of these security threats. But suddenly, um, you know, there are concerns about Russia and what its intentions are, not just in Ukraine, but potentially in the Arctic as well. Now, I'll caveat that by saying that, you know, Russia's military performance means that maybe we do need to reevaluate some of our assumptions 
about, about maybe the threat that Russia presents. But it doesn't mean it doesn't have the ambition. And then you have this particular incident as well. And there are some concerns about, is Canada vulnerable to near space satellite devices? Uh, it, it's possible, right? You know, the, the first balloon was flying at about 60,000 feet. That region is generally considered to be a no man's land where the air is too thin to support flight by most operational uh, aircraft. Um, but gravity is too strong to put a satellite in orbit. But a balloon is kind of the perfect thing to put in that kind of near space height. And there may be some opportunities that, you know, adversarial countries are exploiting. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think, was a bit of a shock to the, the international system and, you know, reminded us that, you know, real wars still do happen. This balloon is kind of an indicator that we are, I don't want to say vulnerable because I don't think this balloon is the be-all and end-all of national security threats. I think we have to be really, really careful in ascribing to it like a, a serious national security dimension. But it's a reminder that, you know, these things still do happen and we do need to take care of our sovereignty. So that it, what I'm going to be looking for, I suppose, uh, because of these events in the coming months is, is this going to change the way we think about military spending and our own security in this country? Already, we have seen the Trudeau government make a decision about planes in the immediate aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right? Uh, this vexing issue that has taken us 20 years to decide what kind of plane to buy. And suddenly, uh, like within weeks after that invasion, we decide to get the F-35, that we're increasing our military spending and things like this. So I think these events do have a way of kind of focusing on issues that we've maybe tried to leave alone for some time uh, and, are, and are coming back to the fore. That was a long answer, but... Like, I guess just I'm so interested in where this conversation is going to take us. Well, I think the important part in terms of people assessing the level of risk relative to other areas we could put funding is what are these balloons or these floating targets? What potentially could they be after in terms of surveillance or otherwise? So I think the answer to that is really... Interesting in the sense that we we don't have a good understanding of what exactly these balloons are doing. And I say this because China has a very large espionage program in terms of its cyber capabilities, its human intelligence capabilities, and its spy satellites. So China doesn't actually need balloon intelligence, I think, to get what it needs. It's not entirely obvious what this is. And if anything, this is actually a huge risk because it's not a covert means of collection. It's a very overt means of collection. We're all now looking up in the sky and seeing these balloons and, and shooting them down with very expensive missiles. You know, it's not clear to me what the, you know, risk-reward payoff here is, right? Um, what is it that China can get from a balloon that it can't get through any other means, uh, including Google Maps, for crying out loud? <laughs> so I, it's, it's, it's a very odd choice, for China to have made. And actually, this is something that maybe concerns me, which is this broader question of what exactly China was thinking. Because either it was going to send a very deliberate message that, hey, we don't care that much about your sovereignty. We're going to send this balloon over and that's that's the end of it. Or alternatively, this was a mistake, right? Like, this, you know, it was kind of a, a miscalculation in terms of understanding what the reaction to these balloons would actually be. And... None of that is very good, right, for diplomatic relations, because it either implies that they didn't care or they misjudged. 
And, and that's not a great thing going forward. Well, going forward for me, after talking to you, I'm now less scared and more curious. So I suppose I don't have to watch uh, Independence Day because it's not a threat of aliens, but I will watch War Games to brush up on NORAD. It's such a good film. Such a good film. <laughs> I'll add it to the queue. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Email us at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also call us and leave us a voicemail at 416-935-5935. We're available in every single podcast player and on every smart speaker. You just need to ask your smart speaker to play the Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Donovan Bennett, sitting in for JHR. We'll talk tomorrow.